0: 1 Corinthians 13, this is our um, final uh, message from this book. Uh, So uh, I guess you could say after I, because I've been preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, I don't know, all year it seems like, um, you could say this morning I'm done with love, okay? Done. Uh, But I hope we're not done with love, we're just done with this series on love, 1 Corinthians 13, and I wanted to just give a personal testimony really of a lot of this. Um, that comes out of 1 Corinthians 13 and Paul's problems with the Corinthian church. He was pastor of this church and it was dividing. It was uh, fighting. Uh, They had uh, issues of being proud and selfish and lots of things were going on. And he says, I know you're uh, wanting to pursue greater gifts and be somebody in Christ, but it's causing problems if you don't do it. With love, And so at the end of chapter 12, he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And that way is the way of love. All of chapter 13 has been dealing with that. Uh, as a result of that, he says, you should now be a more loving church. You should be loving one another, not fighting with one another, not dividing, uh, embracing one another. But I, wa- I didn't want to leave this series without at least some consideration for how this not only helps the church. But it helps the world. It helped the world around Corinth. It helped their friends and neighbors. Paul was not just concerned with a loving church, which clearly he has been greatly concerned with that. But he's also concerned with how a loving church impacts their neighborhood, their community, their world. Uh, give you—it's not hard to make an argument for that. To give you a couple of verses, chapter fourteen. Verse twenty-two, uh, as he's talking about a couple gifts. Notice, notice the exchange there. Verse twenty-two says, "So then, tongues are a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers." You see, he's got both view, both groups in mind: believers and unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. He has both groups in his heart, in his mind. He says, "I want you to realize." your emphasis on gifts, there's times when it really helps the believer. There's a time where it really helps the unbeliever. Both groups are in view. And then when, by the time he gets to chapter 15, he clearly says, it all comes down to the gospel. Chapter 15, the first couple of verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word which i preach to you unless you believed in him in vain paul's passion his goal here is for the salvation of christ's church and that's not going to happen without love and i want us to think about the significance of a loving church for the salvation of the church that's in the world being drawn into the church through love it's through love that we really hear the gospel get the gospel embrace the good news of christ a loving church gives it to us this way 2020 is um uh, matter of fact uh halloween's coming up and i saw a halloween um yard art you know kind of thing and uh a man was standing by this halloween sign that said 2020 and then beside it he says the scariest thing i know And I thought, no, it's not so much that it's scary, but it is concerning. Um, This pandemic of 2020 has changed the way many people think about a lot of things. And one of the things, as I mentioned last week, is a lot of people began assuming or thinking that the church is not essential. And last week I tried to show you through the word of God, the church, that's just a, a ludicrous concept or thought but the church is absolutely essential this has been the year where we've had politicians we've had scientists we've had governors and many other people say that quoting scripture to the church that if you want to love your neighbor you need to ignore your neighbor You need to mask yourself from your neighbor. You need to isolate yourself from your neighbor. You need to not congregate with your neighbor. You need to not assemble with your neighbor. You need not to hug your neighbor. You need to make sure you don't put your arm around your neighbor and pray with your neighbor or sing in your neighbor's presence. Now just think about the logic of that. The way to love your neighbor is to ignore your neighbor. Clearly that does not make sense, but the view is that by doing so you won't kill them. You won't spread a virus to them. When we know God's command is to love our neighbor and not to ignore them, not to discount them. Now I just want you to think with me this morning. It's going to be my personal testimony in just a minute. Is it possible for anyone to get saved apart from the love of the church of Christ? Will they hear the good news of Christ if there is not a loving church that exists to communicate that love with them? Clearly, that was one of Paul's applications That as we become a loving church, it will not just bless us. But there will be a blessing that extends beyond the believer to the unbeliever. Even to their salvation. And for us to get there, we must be a church that loves our neighbor, our community, our nation, our world. I can't find one biblical passage that says, We love our neighbor But in any way, love our neighbor by avoiding our neighbor. And not only can I not find a biblical passage that prescribes that, I can't find one clear example in history where that has ever been the case. That we have been good at loving someone else by just ignoring them completely. Isolating ourselves from them. So in other words, there's not... Biblical truth and evidence for this behavior, and there's not empirical truth or evidence for this behavior, and yet that is being forced on us, and it's not going away anytime soon. So, we need to think about it. If our election changes political powers, some of those people have already said we want to mandate masks and we want to mandate certain shutdowns and certain closures. So, this is not a hypothetical preacher this morning saying well just for sake of argument no this is this is where we are living right now with the threat and there are churches that have been threatened and have been closed and have been shut down in america this year thankfully that's not happened yet here is salvation apart from the church will our loved ones be saved apart from the church my concern here is will your children be saved will my neighbors be saved will they truly be loved and benefited if we as a church isolate and ignore and mask and pull back what will be the impact of that we've got commands from scripture i just want to remind minus of three real quick Matthew 28 these things just uh, constantly in my mind of commands I need to, to consider and be thinking about Matthew 28 beginning at verse 18 the command of Jesus he came up and he spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore so our Lord and Savior our master our king is saying I want you to go And I want you to make, verse 19, disciples of all nations, literally every ethnic group. So I want you to include those into the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, not just teaching, but teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. And you think about... The command, the great commission God has given us here. We are to go and be with people. We're to touch them. We're to baptize people. We're to include them into our community, which is the rite of baptism, your inclusion into the church community. So we're to be welcoming them into the church of Christ, not isolating or pushing them away. We are to be teaching them to observe, not just giving them words, but showing them concrete living examples of what it means to be a follower and disciple of Christ. That's our commission, and nowhere can I find that God's pulled back from that and says that's not on the table anymore. Another command, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. So in the... List of the Ten Commandments. We have the Fourth Commandment, which we are here in obedience to this morning. Verse 8 of Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. The word holy there is consecrated. Keep it set apart. Keep practicing the Sabbath day. Remember, that day does not go away. It's something you do one day out of every seven. It's the first day of the week. Remember it. Consecrate it. Keep it. Mark it off. Nowhere does God rescind that command and say, quit doing it. Verse uh, 12. uh, It goes on. Verse 11. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And he made it. Holy. God wants us to stop, stop our work. He wants us to stop other things we're doing and set apart this day. He, he, he has designed this from the days of creation that all creation would stop and give Him praise for all that He's done, that we would have a day set aside, uh, that work would not interrupt, and we would come together as His people. And publicly proclaim he is Lord, he is sovereign, he has all authority, and we praise and we adore him. That has been God's command for us throughout history, throughout all our days from the very first days of creation. And then one more more command, Hebrews chapter 10, 23, 24, 25. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So hold it. It's it's, it's easy to waver in tragedy in pandemic times. Hold on. Hold on tight. You have a confession. You know what you believe. Stay with it. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, God commands us in tough times like this, continue to be the loving church. Gather together, confess what you believe together, hold on to those statements of faith Tightly And don't waver and use them to stimulate one another, encourage one another, build up one another, be that concrete example for one another of what it means to love one another. Those are things God has commanded, and it doesn't seem he's ever rescinded any of those commands. So if we don't do those things. Back to my original question, is it possible for the world to be saved? I thought about my own testimony, my own example. I was saved at 16 years old during the summer, June of, I won't tell you the year, I was 16. I was going into my junior year in high school. If I had been 16 in 2020... Okay. If I had been 16 during this pandemic and had the same experiences I had at 16, I would not be preaching to you today. I would not be saved. I would be lost and probably by now in the pits of hell. I googled the church I was in when I was 16. They're pretty much shut down. I mean, they still exist. They're a large church in the state. But they are doing registration for just a few and they're putting people in one door and out another door, telling people not to touch one another, wear the mask all the time, don't hug one another, don't pray with anyone, don't sing close to one another. At 16, would I have gone to that church? Would I have felt welcome to that church? If I had been born... If I had been 16 in 2020, I would not have gone to the Bible conference that that church paid for. I would not have been there hearing the preaching of the Word of God. I would have not had people putting their arms around me and begging me to come to Christ and praying for me. I would not have had their encouragement. I would have not had their smiles. I would have not had their touch. I would have not had their love, and I would have not been saved. I'm thankful for a church that stayed open and gave me a hug and gave me a prayer and gave me love and showed me an example after an example after an example of people who worshipped and adored the God I needed in my life. I was in despair. I was ready to end it all. When a church loved me and encouraged me and was relentless to come after me. We need that kind of love. We need that kind of church. And we are that kind of church. And we have that kind of love. And we don't just share it with one another. We share it with our neighbors. We share it with the 16-year-old kid who's down and out. We share it with those around us. So as I thought about my testimony in pandemic times, I said, God, what just happened here? And God reminded me of the way I was saved. And I want to share those five things with you. It would be on the screen if we had one this morning. But disciple, I want to give you five. Disciple making church love. Our church-loving others. Disciple-making church love saved my life. Disciple-making church love saved my life. I already read for you Matthew 28, verse 19. We're to teach everyone to observe everything God has commanded us. We're to go and make disciples. Verse 19, teach them everything. Verse 20, the church taught my parents... To take me to church. I was taken to church every Sunday all of my life. Where did they get that practice? The church taught them. And they had me in church. And they had me in the Sunday school classes. They had me in the youth group. That was not an option. That was a discipleship making ministry. On my parents that they applied to their family. And it impacted me. How does salvation happen? It just doesn't happen through those methodologies. Salvation, we know, happens by God's grace. John three sixteen God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we who believe in him might not perish. God comes into us through his spirit, regenerates us, gives us the new heart, and we cry out to him, Lord and Master, and as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to be children of God. John 1, 12. And that is who I've become because God was merciful to me. But I wouldn't have heard of God's grace. I wouldn't have heard that good news had it not been for parents taking me to church. Trained to do so, after God's grace came into my life, I wanted to go to church whether my parents wanted to or not anymore. Now I can't get enough. I want to be before the Lord and Savior of my soul and give Him praise. I want to live for Him. It was that same discipleship ministry that trained my folks, that started training me. And I began to see, I must praise Him. I must adore Him. I must be in church because He saved me from sin, from darkness, from hell to His wonderful, glorious light. And I was slowly trained and discipled just by watching the family of God and hearing the words of believers. And it began to impact my life over and over. How can they believe if there's not a preacher? Romans 10, 14. There was a preacher in the church preaching the Word of God. How can they live by the Word of God? Matthew 4, 4, you know the verse. Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So I began to learn to live. Because the word of God was being fed to this hungry soul. That's the discipleship ministry of the church. Uh, God constantly shows us his love, his grace. And then Matthew 28:20, 20, just starting to think through, teach them to observe everything whatsoever I have commanded you. All the commandments of God were beginning to be taught to me by watching obedient disciples of Christ live their lives. And that's a discipleship ministry when we begin to see it. Um, and then I begin to learn about church and about the means of grace and about this church was the place I was baptized. This church was the place where I first take the Lord's Supper. This church was the place I first learned to praise God. This church was the place I was first incorporated into the body of Christ, how it changed my life. Without the church, I would have had no road to Christ. No road. Because it's Christ who is in the church. Reaching the lost. The church gave me that road to Christ. Look at James chapter 5, 19 and 20. James chapter 5, the last two verses. Brethren, if any among you, it's a key phrase, strays from the truth and one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Before I was saved, I was in the church. I was among them. And they realized that. And they saw that I was one among them that was constantly straying from the truth. I didn't embrace it. It wasn't my own. But they were relentless in pursuing me. Coming after me. Loving me. Caring for me. Giving me the word of life. And as they kept coming and kept coming and kept hugging and kept embracing. At some point they turned my multitude of sins away as Christ forgave me and cleansed me from all unrighteousness and gave me his love and his care. The disciple-making ministry, church love of the church, saved my life. Second, I want you to see, it was the generous giving church love that saved my life. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. You know the passage. It's in every major section of the scripture. I choose this one because it's the clearest. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. This is God's financial strategy. This is God's financial plan for the church. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. So the storehouse is his house, the Lord's house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing Until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. God has made it clear that um, He's going to finance His church through the tithes and offerings of His people. Simple as that started in the book of Genesis with tithes and offerings. It's gone all the way through the Bible. God says, I finance my church through the church taking their first fruits, the first thing you earn, the first thing you receive, you take 10%. That's what the word tithe means, 10%. You take 10% of what God gives to you, and you give it back to him. That's the tribute you bring to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You give it back, say, God, this is yours And God says, in Malachi, see, there were people who weren't doing that. He says, do you not understand? That's not your money. What I gave you, I gave you 100%, but you're supposed to give 10% back. I gave you enough to worship me with and to finance my church with. And so we give generously back to God, tithes, and then sometimes we, I want to give more, Lord. So there's offerings above the tithe. That's always been God's strategy and plan for financing his church. What's the, the end result of that? Look at Isaiah 55 I love uh, this passage as it explains the gospel, Isaiah 55. Let me read a few verses. Isaiah 55. (laughs) Ho, H O, that's there. I didn't make that up. Ho, everyone who thirsts, it's like, stop and listen to this. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine, buy milk, without money and without cost. That's the example God gives us of his grace to us, the good news to us. He says, I want you to be able to have my grace, my love, my care without cost. I don't want it to cost you. I want it to be free to you. Another similar passage, you know, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read it real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. We, we A lot of times we know uh, verses 8, 9, and 10, but I love verse 7. Let me get there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast for we his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. All right, think about this for a minute. God says, I want to give to you grace. He says, I don't charge for grace. I want you to always be able to say that it was the surpassing riches of the grace of God that overwhelmed me and drew me to himself. By grace, you have been saved. You didn't purchase a ticket to get into heaven You didn't purchase a ticket to become a child of God. You didn't pay for anything to get your salvation in the book of life. We came to God with no money, with nothing that we had that would purchase anything. We came and He says it's without cost. Unbelievable. So I give nothing and I receive everything grace it was the generous giving church love that saved my life who built the building where god's praise was taking place who pays the rent who keeps the lights on it was a generation before generously giving their tithes and offerings so that the church had a place to function A church had a place where they could invite folks, where they could meet with folks, where they could disciple folks and train folks. It's because of generous giving, tithes and offerings of God's people that these facilities that we have are here, and we continue that financial plan for the next generation so that Life after life after life can come in to the sanctuary of God without cost. We never charge. Nothing you have to purchase. You can come to Christ freely and receive all the benefits and all the grace. Now true, once you're a disciple of Christ, you would start tithing and giving your offerings. But that's just because your heart tells you to. I've been so wonderfully blessed. I want to share the love of God with others. I want to praise Him for it. And so tithes and offerings always worship. That's what it is. It's just worship. We don't see it as some burden or obligation. It's just, wow, I give online now that we have that technology. And when we changed our church app a few months ago, whatever, you know, I, we had to change some of that electronic giving. And I used to try to make my tithes and offerings land on Sunday. But uh, through the electronic portals, you know. Well, typically, a lot of people, banks and stuff don't work on Sunday. So I would get the notice on Monday. And I thought, well, that's cool. Thank you, Lord. That was yesterday, you know, kind of thing. Now I've changed it to land on Saturday. And it pumps me up for Sunday. You know, I get that email notice, that text. Your gift has been sent. I was like, yes, I'm beginning to worship God. Praise you, God. I can't wait for tomorrow. It's it's, it's a privilege we have. It's not a burden at all. Because when you give those first fruits, God says, I I removed the devourer. Spend some time meditating on that. That God has designed someone to devour Your resources, if you're not properly giving your resources to him, he says, I want you to get the strategy here. And so we give, and God blesses and blesses and blesses. I know I was saved because of a generation prior to me generously giving tithes and offerings, making a place for a people to gather and then to share and communicate love Disciple-making, church love, saved my life. Generous giving, church love, saved my life. A salty, bright church love, saved my life. You know this passage. But let's look at it. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Two analogies are giving there, given there. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Christ says, you are, speaking to his disciples, speaking to his church, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it become salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in The house so let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven that's what I mean by salty bright church love we're the salt of the earth we're the light of the world Christ on analogy Um, we are the ones who walk the walk of salvation we walk the walk that's the salt of the earth We flavor society because we're the people who don't just hear the word of God. We walk it. We live it. We are the concrete living example before a watching world. And thereby become a light to them. Shining. That's different from the rest that they see. We are the the moral guide to our nation And those around us. Because we have the moral commands of God. It's absolute truth that directs and guides us. In that way, we are a light to them. We flavor all that's going on. Um, You want to taste and see that the Lord is good? Look at me. I, I, I know His commands. I seek to follow His commands. I love Him. Taste and see. Look at a concrete example of a Christ follower, a disciple of Christ. Don't just look at me. Look at the church. Look at you. I've had guests come to me and say, how how do you evaluate the church? And a lot of times, meaning, you know, do I need to look at the church's doctrine, the preaching, and yada, yada, yada. A lot of those things are very valuable, and I don't discount any of that. But a lot of times my answer to them is you want to evaluate the church here, look at the product. What is New Covenant produced? Instead of just looking at the preacher, what's coming on from the pulpit, so to speak, look at the pew. Do you see concrete Christ followers? Do you see the salt of the earth? Do you see the light of the world? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And God so blessed us to get testimony after testimony after testimony of your love and your mercy and your ministry and your compassion and how welcoming you are and how loving you are to the guests who come through our doors. That's the way it should be. That's the love of the church. And it's that salty, bright church love that saved my life and it saves time after time after time so many of us we say I want to bring my neighbor and we so hope that when we bring our neighbor into this place that somebody here that one of you will welcome them and love them and minister to them because it changes their world it's that salty bright church love that changes life after life after life. Would anybody really be saved without that? If the church of Christ was not worthy of tasting and seeing that they're good? Don't we need that concrete living example? Would we really trust and believe in Christ if we didn't see the fruit of His church, didn't see His body here on earth? big sense in which our prayers, we're praying that what's true in heaven is true on earth. And our only real chance of seeing that is through the life of the church. Christ is commended through the church. A salty, bright church love saved my life. Number four, a significant heavenly vision church love saved my life. This is crucial. A significant heavenly vision saved my life. You all know that you are doomed to destruction if you don't know where you're going. Without a vision, people perish. At 16, I didn't have much vision. I couldn't see past Friday night. And that was depressing. And that led me to want to chuck it off not care but the church knows where it's going the church always has a significant heavenly vision and that saved my life where's the church in all this look at colossians chapter 3 this is our church example colossians chapter 3 verse several verses Colossians 3, let me read the first four verses. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, so if you're a saved individual, keep seeking. So you start, you immediately, when you see Christ, you're looking up. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That's kind of the example of what Christians do. We are those who have significant heavenly vision. We always know where we're going. I'm going home. That's significant. I'm going home. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to heaven. This earth is not all there is, this is a short, temporary existence. But my Savior he is seated in the heavens because he is the life and resurrection. And has given me resurrection power. As a matter of fact, he says in John 10, he says, You who believe in me will live even if you die. That's significant. I know where I'm going. I'm going home. I didn't know that before Christ. But now that that significant vision has been imparted to me, so that I always am in root to someplace more significant than where I'm currently at. It's going to get better and better and better for me as heaven opens up and God says, all that I have prepared is going to blow you away as he loves me even deeper and even richer. Such a vision changes how we live and what we do, it it deals with so much of our depression and stuff that's going on in this life. Let me uh, kind of give a sobering passage for this time. Look at Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight, verse thirty six says what does jesus words what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul now what i want you to get from that passage is that there needs to be a more than this life only vision there needs to be a more than this life only vision or this earth only vision jesus what does it profit you If you have only a this world life vision. What if your world life view was to live this life well. But that's as far as it went. This life on earth. What if you gained the whole world in your living pursuits. You actually became the richest man in the world. You got it all. But then you died. See, that really should be depressing. Because what does it really profit you when there's an eternity waiting for you and you didn't make it there as a believer in Christ? You see, that's not, if you don't make it to Christ, you do not have a good place to go. Your life is ending worse than it started, not better. That's not significant. That's not what you want. So many people ha- are trapped into a, this life-only existence. I so say I gotta protect it at all cost. I gotta guard myself. I gotta shield myself because this is all I got. Um, interesting that Harvard. Health, I think it was Harvard Health Study Institute. Anyway, it's Harvard College, University, whatever they call it now. They, they did a survey on the health of Americans during this time. And it came out in the summer this year. That they determined that people who go to church regularly were far less likely... To be addicted to drugs, to be addicted to alcohol, um, to be caught in immorality, and, and to commit suicide. We knew that. They didn't have to do that study. So it's, I don't use the study as though, oh, now you've had the proof from Harvard, okay? You already know these things. Anybody who's ever done counseling, if you've counseled a friend, if you've counseled as a parent, your kids, whatever, you know that when people lose their vision, when they don't think they are going somewhere significant, they get depressed and that leads to addictions and that leads to suicide. And the only way to climb back out of that pit is a significant heavenly vision that you are going to be grabbed up by the grace of God and given a place to go of all unbelievable significance. You can go home and be with Jesus and have all the glories of His heaven. It was that significant heavenly vision That saved my life. When somebody told me. This world is not all there is David. There's so much more. Let me show it to you. And you begin to get excited. Of all the riches. And glory. That God has. For those. He has saved and changed. Um, Interesting. That we've got scientists and politicians and others who say going to church is risky business. And it's especially risky for the children. Really? Suicide among teenagers is up 100% this year. 100% increase during the pandemic. Because they are losing a significant heavenly vision. And where are they going to get it if we all isolate from them? If we hold them off? If we don't embrace them and love them? It's that significant heavenly vision that saved my life. One more. An all-embracing community church love saved my life. An all-embracing community Church love saved my life. You know this. It's, empirically, you know this. It's not good to be alone. That comes to us on the second page of the Bible. It's not like you had to read far to figure this out. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. So I'll make a helper for, for him. And God makes Eve for Adam. And you know what's going on there. Genesis 1, he's just finished creating the entire world. And he says, and everything I've created in heaven and on earth is good. And then he makes this emphatic statement. It's, it's not a negative. He didn't say, I made something ungood. He, he, he's, he's emphatically trying to tell us you have the whole world but you don't have one another it wouldn't be good all of this good world is good but you need each other and so he created eve for adam so that they could populate the earth with a family they could have children they could have togetherness and after god created a family church then he began to build a national church. And after he built the national church, then he says, I want to go international to every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is not good to be alone. You need each other. You need this community. And this community needs to embrace one another. It's interesting, isn't it, that it wasn't until Adam and Eve sin that the whole idea of this negative isolationism began to occur. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against His commands, they immediately started putting on masks and isolating themselves from one another and running from God. And it just leads to trouble after trouble after trouble. They're far from God and far from each other is not good. I was thankful for a church that wanted to embrace because I was already lonely. I didn't need more of that. I needed a church that understood the pains and agony of loneliness and would embrace me and include me and not mask themselves from me and not keep themselves from me, thinking that it was too risky. They might kill me. I was already dying. What I needed was life. What I needed was community. It wasn't good to be alone. So I had a church that was willing not to distance itself, but willing to assume the risk. You got risk both ways. And this is what it doesn't, I just don't hear. Definitely don't hear it in society, and I don't hear it enough in the church. But when you choose to be alone, when you choose to isolate, when you choose to say, I will love my neighbor by avoiding my neighbor, you assume certain risk when you do that, and it's risky. You assume the risk when you isolate that you don't need to live under elder oversight. You don't need to submit to those God's speaking through. When you choose to isolate, you assume the risk that you don't need to come under the preaching of the Word of God in the arena where the Spirit of God is convicting. When you choose to isolate, you assume the risk. You don't need the gifts of all Christ's body coming to bear on your soul as you see them live out being followers of Christ when you choose to isolate you assume the risk that you don't need the discipleship making ministry of the church you don't need you assume the risk that you don't need the blessings of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the giving of tithes and offerings in a public way to display your love and honor to God. You assume the risk. You don't need to obey clear and obvious commands. You assume the risk that uh, this public arena is not a powerful arena of God chosen for his glory and his honor you assume the risks that god might just start saving people another way really that he's going to divorce himself from the church gathered and start saving people differently than through the church has anyone ever been saved Apart from a loving church. I know of a couple biblical examples, you do too, like the burning bush and the Damascus Road. I mean, there are a couple, but those are the outliers. I don't know of anybody in my lifetime that's ever been saved apart from the loving ministry of the church. And we are being told that ministry can just go online. But that's not the ministry we're talking about. Who cares that God has designed salvation through church love? Who cares about me, my salvation? Does my neighbor care? I used to have a neighbor that would cut his grass on Saturday morning at six thirty, right outside my bedroom window. That's stupid. You don't do that. There's community codes against such things. He doesn't care about my salvation. He doesn't even care about waking me up. Who cares about the salvation of the lost? It's the church. If the church doesn't care, nobody cares. Will people be saved? It's a scheme of the devil to isolate and shut down and close the church. How many people during this pandemic have been lost? Because the church is not the loving community of Christ? all-embracing community of Christ for the world to see. Who gives thought? Who cares about the salvation of your children? Who cares about the salvation of your spouse? Who cares about the salvation of your neighbor? Who cares about the salvation of your grandchildren? Who cares about the salvation of the next generation? It's the church. It's church love that saves lives. So the bottom line, are you all in? Are you engaged? Because if you're all in, if you are engaged in the life of the church, your life is saving lives. That's pretty significant. People see your salt, your light, your following Christ. That's one of the ways lives are being saved. Generously giving, lives are being saved. Doing discipleship, lives are being saved. Embracing, welcoming, serving guests, lives are being saved. Hugging, praying, Holding hands. Showing empathy. Lives are being saved. Giving vision of victory. And church triumphant. And the glories of Christ in heaven. Lives are being saved. So those of you, and you're here, you're engaged. There's others who aren't here that are engaged. I get that. I want to say thank you. Thank you for church love. Church love saved my life. Church love saved so many lives. And I can't think of any lives that are saved that aren't saved through church love. Let's pray together. Father, we're not done with love. We're getting started. We want to be the church that loves you and loves our neighbor and loves our children and loves our spouse and loves the people around us with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We want to be that church where the world says, we know they are disciples because of their love for one another. And Lord, let that love spill over to multitudes for your glory and your honor. Forgive us, Lord, of making so light and so little of a loving church. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.